Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder. How do you pick your protocols? What are best practices? And how do we apply standards of care across an entire universe of veterinary professionals? This week on the Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we are going to tackle a very tough topic, and that is standards of care. How do you pick your protocols and which standards apply when? But before we get into all of that, as always, I'm your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And today we're going to be talking about how we decide how we treat different cases and what recommendations we make to our clients. At a certain point, you know, there are those things that we see all the time and we've got to decide how we want to approach them, what recommendations we're going to make to our clients. And it is not always clear exactly what we should do. There are a lot of factors that come into play. All of us get taught certain things in school. But there are new guidelines coming out all the time. We get taught different things by our mentors. We practice in different kinds of veterinary medicine in different places around the world. And so there are a lot of factors that come into play. You guys, when you first got out into practice, how did the practices that you worked at determine how they were going about treating patients? And how did they go about updating protocols if they decided things needed to change? You know, Cindy, as a veterinarian, I will tell you, without a doubt, the single most common refrain that I heard was, this is how I was taught in school, you know, and it's even to such a degree that we jokingly refer to University of Pennsylvania Veterinary School graduates as Penwees, because as you know, they always say, well, at Penn, we do it this way or that Uh way. Um, So my point being that it's a lot of your your educational experience that determines how you do things in clinic. In fact, I can even remember when the AHA guidelines were first starting up, many of my professors were objecting to certain tenets of, of certain protocols, and they're going, well, that's not how we do it here at Georgia. Yeah. And, and you know, I think those guidelines have even tried to be pretty specific about saying, we're not trying to establish a specific standard of care here. We're giving suggestions based on the data that we have. And I think one of my first exposures to a set of recommendations was the Lyme consensus statement that came out of ACVIM, if you can call it a consensus statement. (laughs) Um, I think they were joking about it at the time. I was still a veterinary assistant and I got to go to a CE with my practice owner. And it just, you know, again, Sometimes it's everybody's opinion, but still nobody can come to an agreement. Well, Becky, what about veterinary technician school? I mean, what about you? You guys are in the middle. You're caught in the crossfires of schools and recommendations and protocols. Yeah, you know, I feel like I only obviously have the one experience because I only went to one tech school and it's actually the same I taught at. But for us, they actually prepped us for that really well. And when we were in labs, what they would tell us on a regular basis, and I know to this day, it's still what they say is, we're going to teach you how we do it. And when you go to your practice, you'll learn how they do it. Okay, so Cindy, which now begins the real question. How do we determine what protocols we'll follow in our own practice? How do we pick our protocols? Yeah, and and I think another question there is, 
do we pick a protocol? Because we've talked about it in this podcast several times. And I'll, I'll be really honest with you guys. When I interviewed, there were certain places I interviewed that they said, hey, here's we do have kind of a list of the ways that we tend to try and do things. But a lot of practice that I work at, they're just, well, it's individual doctor preference and just roll with it. And I, I got to say, I'm starting to be more and more of a convert to Becky's way of thinking is that that makes things really challenging for the whole team. Absolutely. So how does a practice in your experience, guys, how often do practices really have a set protocol or how often does it differ from doctor to doctor? Well, and let me jump in too. As an owner, you know, this is what I, I mean, I, I kind of made my career out of doing just that, of, of establishing guidelines. And as you know, Cindy, I always called them guardrails, not guidelines. I just wanted to make sure that gotcha. you were doing some basic minimum diagnostics and some minimum therapeutic protocols. Like I at least didn't want you to send the cat out with, you know, running weeping eyes without some diagnostic test at first. So getting back to that, I think it's important to have these guidelines. Now, what I did was when I was determining like, okay, how are we going to treat a diabetic? How are we going to treat a limping dog? How are we going to treat a pet with obesity? I searched the literature. So I looked at what were some of the latest papers and publications that were out there. And I started basing it on a combination of two things. One, what the evidence said, and two, what I could practically implement. Because there are certain tenets of like diabetic management that maybe just won't work for my rural North Carolina setting. So I would take the best practices published in, in peer-reviewed articles, and then I would say, okay, I can do 90% of that. And then that became my guideline. Yeah. And, and Becky, what about you? Did you, I know you've got, had a chance to work at a large variety of different kinds of practices. Do you find that they tend to be protocol driven? Does it depend on the type of practice? I think it depends a lot on the type of practice. And I, I hope we're getting more and more there every day because, you know, recently we did our, our podcast on control. And I think for support staff, a lack of protocols can really make things difficult. And, you know, you don't know your expectations. Uh, you don't know what is being expected of you as a support staff member without those protocols. But when they're in place, boy, you can really rocket your job and know exactly, you know, what foot goes in front of the next. So it's a valuable tool to have. And I think it's really important for consideration for all practice owners and managers to know how much it's appreciated to have them and, and how much time it can actually save in the case of an emergency. Yeah. And, and I found when I was a new practitioner too, not knowing what the expectations were of my team was also a pretty significant source of conflict. You know, if I don't know what I can expect of them, if they don't know what they can expect of me, I, I remember this is kind of my famous story I talk about with my jerk research that I made a technician cry to, I, I was horrified and so upset about having done that. But we had different protocols for how to administer propofol. Um, in the place I was working, it was okay for licensed technicians to induce anesthesia. And she pushed the propofol slowly, but she pushed it all at once. And I had been taught at school how they teach us to, you know, give about a third of it and check the patient to see how responsive they were before you give more. So, so I do think it has the potential to decrease a lot of conflict too. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a really good point because there is also this emotional and leadership component and guidelines do help you sort of, if everybody's on the same page or at least moving in the same direction, then you can avoid some of this, like you said, the propofol crying episode. I mean, yeah. you know, because you've, you've come together as a consensus. Um, I think the one other dynamic dynamic of this is you have to be 
very vigilant to changes. And so sometimes veterinarians get locked into this one way of doing things. You know, they just use this one anesthetic protocol kind of for everything. Um, yeah. And we, we really, we're better than that. And so I would, I would argue that if you're not always pushing yourself to change and reevaluate, you know, then you probably need to rethink that. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I love that you said that and thank you for saying that because I think one of the most major frustrations and a question I hear from other technicians and support staff members all the time is, how do you get your veterinarian to change protocols? Or we have this really horrifying protocol and I know we could be doing so much better, but my veterinarian is old school and won't change. And so, you know, other than playing this podcast in surgery next time to talk about staying up to date, you know, it's important to, you know, empower support staff staff members to help implement change within practice. And going to those peer-reviewed journals, going to those peer-reviewed articles and finding the proof and finding the evidence and, and the backing from the experts and the best protocols is always my answer to how to get those things changed, present that evidence. And I am I'm such a supporter of that. When I was a new graduate, um, my support team, they felt very strongly about having us not have patients for dentals under for extremely long periods of time. They had had with previous veterinarians, some anesthetic deaths related to that. Mm -hmm. And we know the data supports that as well, that right. the longer a patient is under anesthesia, the increased risk. And so we started limiting our dentals to under two hours. And that actually ended up working out well for clients as well, because we knew that we we charged our extractions by time. And so we knew that there was going to be a maximum amount of time for extractions. Otherwise, we would be dividing up the the dental itself. So and I, I swear our patients did so much better when we started having those those shorter dental cleanings. Well, you know, one of the primary pushbacks to updating protocols and even the choice of a protocol or standard of care is results oriented. So now you have this quote unquote old school vet who is saying, you know, we've always done it this way and it always works. And yet, Cindy, how do we confront that sort of protocol, that sort of change when you say, I know it works, but it can be better if you try this? Yeah. You know, I was at a really uh, interesting CE event I think we were just having a discussion at the table and there was a, a vet there who said what he does to instigate change is he talks to his team and he says, oh, I heard a whole bunch of vets, other vets talking at a CE event about this thing that they're all doing and seeing it work really well. And he kind of floats the idea past his whole team to kind of get everybody's feeling for it. But kind of this idea of how is it working for everybody else and starting to talk about that? Because I think, again, we are so results oriented, but often those ideas that we're scared to use in our practice because we don't know how they work, they're already working someplace else. Someone else is often a, a early adopter and they've tried it and it is working great. So so can we go get that uh, evidence for ourselves and see that it is helpful? So my standard of care in a rural North Carolinian practice might be different than downtown Manhattan, yeah. but it's certainly and inarguably different than in most shelters. So Becky and Cindy, how do we apply best standards, standards of care, protocols in different veterinary settings? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good point because even within the shelter environment, we have different protocols for different situations. And there are some situations where it's a disaster and we have, 
nothing and we have right. to do what we can with what we have um and and honestly in my experience when we're working in different areas we shoot for the university protocols we have some incredible research universities who are writing some amazing protocols when it comes to treating all types of diseases infections and conditions and um we go straight to the universities in an effort to do the best that we can but i also work for an agency that has a lot of resources uh, available to them in a lot of cases. But I have seen so many shelters that have nothing, that have absolutely nothing. And they're working with local veterinarians to provide veterinary care. And so one thing I think is really interesting is how are these veterinarians working those protocols in uh, parallel to their own protocols with with pets as opposed to shelter pets? Okay, so Cindy, we, we've defined, and I think we all would agree that in shelters, maybe you have to do things different ways due to cost, due to numbers, due to resources. But how does that apply now to general veterinary practice? Because let's say that you're confronting a client who has limited resources. When is it okay to change your protocol to fit the demands and needs of an individual? Yeah, and so, and and I think we've talked about this quite a bit before. And I think for me, the answer has really been trying to take as much judgment as I can out of the situation. So I still try to recommend the gold standard. So I still present owners and I say, hey, I want to make sure that I don't assume that I know what you want. Um, I'm going to talk to you about ideally what we would do and everything that we would do. And then we'll figure out what makes sense for you and your family. Um, so I try to talk about everything, even though I'm working in a low income area, and then we figure out what is feasible for them. And then I aim for the standard of better. Can we get a little better than we did last time? Can we provide a little bit more education than we did last time? Or can I figure out what that person, what their priorities are and making sure that I'm meeting their priorities? So I, I feel like our legal obligation is still to recommend our protocol. I don't think our legal obligation is to make clients feel judged if they cannot 100% comply with that protocol. Yeah. And I think when we talk about the importance of protocols and, and you know, not to rehash it over and over again, yeah. but I think that having those ways of doing things and spelling it out that way keeps us from assuming our clients will do one thing or another. And we've talked about that in other podcasts and how much trouble we can get ourselves into when we assume one thing. So I, I love the idea of being able to always present that, but having laid out the way that you will do that. And I can tell you from experience as a support staff member, it's really crucial um, for us because it can be really frustrating when you work with a veterinarian who will only do maybe one avenue and it becomes a, a real struggle conflict or the patient has to leave without care or find somewhere else. And it, it, that can be really unfortunate. So it's really, I think it's really super important. And I think it makes us feel good about the medicine we're providing. Yes. And Cindy, I will argue that it's doubly, triply infinitely more important to have these alternate protocols for newer graduates because they just maybe don't have the experience to say, you know, there is something that we didn't yes. do at the university that might be applicable in this situation. But let me play devil's advocate here. And, and one of the big criticisms that I've encountered in nearly 30 years is it goes like this, Cindy. It goes, okay, you present that gold standard to that client who cannot afford it, okay, for yeah. whatever reason. But now they say, I want it. Why can't you give it to me? Why is it so expensive? I demand the gold standard now that you've told me that it exists. How do we deal with that part of the protocol and standards of care? Yeah, and and frankly, <laughs> my my way of approaching that, and I don't know that it's the right way, and I, I think it is frustrating, but I try and make it so that if, if I am 
telling the client that I think they are trying to do their best and that I believe they want to do their best for their pet, but we simply can't. I, I try and use a lot of we because if I'm not judging them, I find that they're less likely to judge me. If I'm trying to show I like them and believe in them, I tend to find they they give me the same benefit of the doubt. And often we I, I have a discussion that redirects frustration at the situation or at other things that we could do in the future or at other options that they have um, that if, you know, I'm not able to provide that answer, is there someone else that can provide an answer for them? But I try and make sure that it's never a very black and white either or. There is always some other specific option. Like in my particular area, I might say, you know, hey, we're in the middle of Kansas City. We might have um, higher rents here than out in the country. So that might be an option for you to get uh, less expensive care. Or we do have a nonprofit um, veterinary hospital associated with one of the shelters. That might be an option for you. So, so there is rarely a situation for me where there is literally nothing else that I can offer them to do. Um, so I, so I, maybe I've just been lucky in that clients seem to understand that we can do the best that we can for the pets, and we try to have a little discussion about, hey, you know, for the next pet or for the next time, what can we do to plan ahead? Yeah, I love that being proactive about it as well. And that's so important. So I guess I want to throw a little bit of a curveball, though. So I, this is veterinary medicine. It's practicing. And we know we are not prepared for every situation every <laughs> right. time. You know, we always get those surprises. So what happens when you have something walk through that door that there is no protocol for? What are your go-tos? I want to shout them out a little bit. We have no sponsorship. We get no money from any of these guys. But like, who are the go-tos when you don't know how to do something? Uh, for me, it is undoubtedly then, and it has yeah. been since the very beginning, you know, since Duncan and Paul dreamed this thing up way, way back before most of you that are listening today were even born. Uh, so Vin, for me, that's where I go whenever I don't know what to do. Cindy, yeah. what about you? Yeah. So, so Vin first usually is the fastest, just especially to look up past cases. I had a kitten come in this week that had symptoms of what looked like puppy strangles, and there are apparently like five or six different things that can cats don't get strangles um but <laughs> there are like five or six things that can present that way so thanks finn also um sometimes facebook groups so the dvm moms group is amazing so when i had a, a raccoon a neurologic raccoon coming in and i was like okay guys is this gonna be anything but rabies they were very helpful in helping me remember that distemper can affect raccoons as well and a close second is the five minute vet consult. So obviously oh, I yes. love those uh, books that, that and they have on a wide variety of topics now, but that's like a resource that is dog eared and tabbed and highlighted and annotated. So, you know, that's like a quick go to for me. So and there's yeah. a wonderful differential diagnosis book as well that just has long lists of differential diagnoses that I love. And it's one of my go to right. gifts for yeah. uh, for new graduate veterinarians or for veterinary students. So Christmas coming up or holidays coming up, maybe take a peek at that one. And I'll throw one last one. And I know this one is a curveball, Becky, and probably doesn't answer, but it's uh, I've, I've got a couple I'm of excited. copies of this because I still rely on it. And it's an old field guide to wilderness medicine. I, oh. I don't remember who the, the authors are, but it's actually a medical book 
and it just like has all these crazy things like what happens huh. if you get a pine needle stuck in your eye oh. <laughs> you know just yeah. just crazy stuff like that but what i found is that of course in a rural part of america a lot of that stuff applies to dogs and cats. They get into some of the same predicaments that apparently people yeah. in the wilderness do. So it's this <laughs> old field guide to wilderness medicine. I, I wish I knew, had the uh, author's name in front of me, but I don't have it handy. But it's one of those things that like whenever I really, really run out of like, oh gosh, nobody has ever seen anything like this, yeah. then I will actually go thumb through it and see what about the people? Yeah. And and just turning, I, I am... Not everybody works with a whole bunch of other veterinarians, but I, I feel lucky that I do. And um, when I'm in the clinic, often I'm the only doctor in the clinic, but I can reach my team via Slack. So I will reach out to my fellow yeah. teammates as well. And I think clients love that. You know, if you have yeah. a weird case as a new grad, I thought I'm supposed to know everything and clients are going to freak out if I don't know everything. They They realize when you think something's weird. And you can say, hey, this one doesn't quite fit the mold. Let's reach out and get some additional help. Call your local specialist, call your vet school, call your doctor colleagues. Your clients will actually appreciate the fact that you are not trying to be the hero and that you want to reach out and get some additional help. Becky, are there any similar resources for technicians that are go-tos when you're like, I don't know how to do this? <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, first I want to say that, you know, VIN is very much veterinarians only. They're super exclusive that way, but they have a really great resource for support personnel. So they have VSPN, right. um, which is Veterinary Support Personnel Network. And so they also are very, very similar in their efforts. They have um, boards and resources and handouts and just about everything that you can imagine, very similar to VIN. Um, and that's pretty awesome. And, and that's a great go-to for me. I think when I think about a textbook, a manual, something I put my hands on, my McKernan book is never very far away. In mm, fact, yeah. about six McKernan books are never very far away. <laughs> it's one that you buy that updated edition every single time. Um, and it's got absolutely everything. What I find really cool are there are more and more vet tech calculators, vet tech manuals, vet tech pocket guides that are really specific, um, CRI related, doing really great medicine, really advanced medicine coming out of the specialty movement. And so there are a lot of really cool um, go-tos that way. And I think the, um, for me independently, I, I have worked in telehealth and, and that five-minute diagnostic guide is amazing because when you are trying to give somebody a list of differentials and things that they could possibly be in the effort to convince them to please go ahead and go to the veterinarian, <laughs> uh, it's always nice to have some things to have them be prepared for. So um, we've got a lot of really great tools for veterinary technicians as well. And I think we're getting more and more every day. Now, one thing I would like to ask our audience, I'd like to get their opinion because I will share mine now, but what do you think the benefit of these standards of care and published protocols are? I fall firmly into the camp that I like establishing standards of care and definitions because I believe that the more organized medicine is, the more likely we are to hit those marks and actually to progress as a profession. But some people think that it's too restrictive. So, Cindy, a lot of times people say, hey, you know, by publishing a protocol on treatment of diabetes, you've actually now limited the scope of progress and you've actually put pressure on people that can't afford to do certain tenets. So it's negative and judgmental. What do you think about that? I, I think it's really, really helpful. I, I, as a new graduate, again, like I reached for those all the time. And it's also really helpful to be able to show to clients so that when you're saying, this is why I recommend what I recommend, we have this external source that is an authority. They've compiled a lot of research. We're, we're kind of doing things a bit by the book, right. um, you know, combined with my personal experience, combined with the advice of others. 
but I found it really helpful. I, I do think we need to, as you guys have mentioned so clearly, realize that these are guidelines. These are a starting right. point that right. we need to be flexible. And I think if we do that with with that in mind, I think it's a, it's a good thing. Um, you mentioned the diabetes guidelines a couple times. That was my go-to when I first got out into practice. Endocrinology is not my favorite. You guys know me. I love derm. <laughs> I love behavior. I love dentistry. Endocrinology, n- not so much. But I had to learn, you know, the guidelines don't talk about listening to the patient. You know, now we have new technology. We have, you know, a device you can implant for 10 to 14 days and it can take glucose readings. So you don't necessarily have to have owners doing, you know, alpha tracks at home or doing a, you know, 12 hour in hospital glucose curve. So, so we also have to know how we update those protocols in between the times that those guidelines are changed. And and I've been honored to, to participate in a couple of, of these uh, guidelines and, and protocols. And, and one of the things that really touched me was the impact we have globally. So us publishing things in AHA or in Wasava or wherever actually impacts a veterinarian in Peru or in Brazil or in in Thailand and Taiwan. And so I really think it's important. I, I do. I'm a strong supporter and advocate of these published guidelines and protocols and establishing standards of care. I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna go to my grave believing that because I also realize that you know North Carolina versus California is actually not the bigger debate. It's actually how do we help those people in emerging countries, developing developing countries, actually do the best thing so that the profession progresses globally. And and Becky, do you find that those protocols are helpful for technicians as well? And, and do you find that that can help with some of that problem of hey, old school veterinarian, this is <laughs> this is what <laughs> maybe we should be doing? Well, yeah, and and like that's kind of what I mentioned before was like I, I think when when technicians come to me and ask me about how to get changes implemented or how to do these best practices, if we love science in this field, we love data, and if you try to convince me to do anything, I'm going to ask you: Are there studies? Are there papers? Can you show me the science? Can you show me how that study was done? It, we pick these protocols apart and want to know where they come from. Uh, so you've kind of got to have a leg to stand on when you go to anyone in charge. Of, of making protocols or anytime you're trying to present your case for a change. And it's very helpful when you are maybe a little more progressive or maybe you're just really more into parasitology than everybody else in your practice or, you know, <laughs> a certain area. And so best practices are getting overlooked because everybody else thinks dentistry is super cool, but nobody wants to talk about the fact that we're deworming incorrectly. So I think it's really nice um, that we have these. And, and when you guys were talking about the different resources resources that you use. One thing I found was interesting was we are still really using everything from these tangible, this was, I can only picture Dr. Ernie's book as this like falling apart field guide study to, (laughs) you know, all the way through these really progressive pages where people are talking to each other in real time. And I, I just think it's fascinating that we're, we're really using the scope of all the tools available. And Becky, I think you brought up such a great point, which I I think is going to be kind of hopefully our last issue to wrap us up, which is, you know, how are we creating these protocols? And in in my experience, at least, it's exactly what you said. It's the person who has the time or who has the energy or passion about a certain issue who's sitting down, writing something up, asking the, the teammates, hey, this is what I'm thinking our protocol should be. Is that okay? Is that kind of your experience, guys, in terms of how these protocols actually happen? Dr. Ward, it sounds kind of like you're leading them from the top as a practice owner. 
Yeah, definitely. I felt like that was my initial responsibility. Of course, over the years, they got changed and tweaked. And and honestly, in 25 years, it probably looked very little uh, like it did when it first originated. So obviously, you know, being flexible and dynamic is, is critical to this. But you're right, having the time. But more importantly, as you stated, the passion, because if you just go tell somebody, hey, Becky, go get a protocol and write this up for roundworms, you know, and, and Becky's really not into parasitology, it's probably going to be a, a pretty vacant and empty protocol. Becky, do you feel like you've gotten to be involved in writing any protocols or it, how do, is that reflective of what you've seen? It's just passion yeah. projects and it happens as it happens. Yeah, I think I, I have definitely, well, I mean, I'm sure you guys can imagine I'm a pretty vocal about the things <laughs> that should be changed in a practice. So I'm all like, here's the protocol I wrote. Um, yes, <laughs> you know, but that's just me. And it, but no, and I've learned, you know, as I've grown and matured that, you know, really to champion a project with the, with the best outcome is to find the person who's the most passionate about it. And you guys know, I preach all the time about long longevity for technicians and support staff members. You guys probably have some customer service reps up front who who are really passionate about something or someone in the kennel who would really like that responsibility to kind of um, write some protocols about their area in the clinic. You, you know, we've got specialty practice members and, and all of these specialty um, technicians out there who are so capable and so educated. And we've got areas that are changing and growing every day. Uh, and it's starting to really include our profession more. So I, I, I'm excited to see what keeps coming because we're getting more recognition and respect for the areas that we have expertise in. So it sounds like we've decided that <laughs> for the benefit of our clients, for team cohesion, it can really help to have some protocols. When you're putting them together, you start with the knowledge that you have, reach out for a lot of data, resources, use some of these uh, standards and recommendations as a guideline and combine that with the experience of those you know and, and your specific community's needs. Don't be afraid to be a little bit flexible and don't exercise judgment when uh, applying those protocols to your clients. And then make sure to keep them updated. Empower the people who are passionate about these topics to bring those protocols to life and keep them up to date. So we, we hope you've enjoyed us tackling this tough topic. And we'd love to hear from you guys and hear what you think. Uh, tell us about the things that you're passionate about, protocols you might have struggled with. Do you agree with the guidelines that are out there? Do you find them helpful, useful, oppressive? And uh, are you struggling to get your clinic to even write some protocols or keep them up to date? Hey, and while you're writing protocols, don't forget to write us a review, especially on iTunes. Tell us what you think about us and maybe even suggestions for making this podcast even better. Reach out to us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, Veterinary Viewfinder and at Vet Viewfinder. We want to hear from you and we want to keep this conversation going outside of the podcast. And don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time, as always, as per our protocol, bye. 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 I like that. I was actually kind of thinking that in the back of my head. <laughs> That's our standard of care, just to say goodbye. Dorks. <laughs> that was great.